0: Hello there and welcome along to this podcast. Uh, my name is James Clack from Active IQ and what we're going to be talking about today and discussing with, with my guest who I'll introduce in just a moment are the core skills fitness professionals should have and specifically looking at the importance of coaching within the health, fitness or well-being profession. So I'm really excited to be joined by Tom Bainbridge, academy manager and head tutor at BTN Academy. But you may also know him as the co-host of Ben Kuma Radio, the podcast series, which if which if you haven't already checked out, uh, strongly recommend that you you do so. It's some great. It's got some great insights um, on that podcast series, some great guests as well, and lots of no nonsense information, which is really popular with the listeners, reflected by its high ranking and extremely positive reviews. So welcome along, Tom. How are you doing today?
1: Hey, James. Thanks for having me, Ryan, I'm, Yeah, I'm really good. I'm really good.
0: Good stuff. So before we get started um, on today's topic of, of, you know, the role of fitness professionals and core skills and specifically coaching, it'd be great if you could just tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself, your journey in the field of the health and fitness industry and profession, um, and just give them a bit of a flavor for, for what you do at BTN Academy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I've been in the industry for about 11 years now, which sounds like a really long time when I say it out loud, <laughs> actually. But yeah, so I've been around for a while. Um, most of that has been sort of in the shadows, though I'm not somebody that you probably will have heard of if you've heard of me at all until maybe about a year ago when I started doing the Ben Yeah. radio. Uh, I initially I initially started working in the industry by, I uh, well, so as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm from the Northeast. And everyone, more or less, in the northeast worked in the Nissan factory that there is that's in Sunderland. It's probably the biggest employer in the northeast. that basically replaced the mines when the mines closed, uh, so I did my stint there. I worked there for about two years. Uh, absolutely hated it. And I was fortunate enough that one of my friends that I'd known from a, a while previously, um, he actually worked on the TV show Gladiators. So mm-hmm. if you watch the more, if you watch the more recent iteration. Uh, He was a warrior, on gladiators, and and, yeah. And when when he came back to, uh, yeah, when he came back to Durham, when all of that series and everything finished, he owned a supplement shop, and so I was given a job there, and that was kind of my introduction to the fitness industry. Um, It was quite a fortunate place for me to work, actually. I think if I wasn't there, I probably wouldn't be where I am now, and the reason for that is just that the shop was quiet. I mean, it was a brick and mortar supplement shop. So people didn't come in very often. The business did quite well, but there would be a few hours during the day where you didn't get any customers in. Yeah. And because of the industry I was working in, because of what I was doing, recommending supplements to people, um, I just took it by myself to learn as much as possible about nutrition. Yeah. Um, and from that, I discovered that I was actually really interested in it. Enrolled in an open university course in health science, completed that. and, From there, I started to actually know what I was talking about. People started asking me for advice, and I was very fortunate in that I fell into reading uh, from the likes of Larry McDonald, uh, Martin Birkin before he went a little bit off the rails, uh, Alan Aragon, so various industry experts who were recognized as being highly qualified and highly reputable evidence-based professionals. Um, I was fortunate in that I fell into reading those people instead of less reputable folks. Um, it was purely by chance more than anything, but them in combination with my, so I at university meant that hopefully I, I actually started to know what I was talking about. Uh, from working in the supplement shop, I ended up working with a couple of people on their nutrition programs, ended up being a personal trainer. And from there, just through various discussions with people online, I ended up working with Ben. So it's been a, it's been an interesting journey that's kind of been lucky more than anything, I suppose, but I like to think that I have earned my position now. Um, So now my role is to run the BTN Academy. So we teach about 300 fitness professionals every year to be better qualified in their nutrition coaching and in the nutrition coaching area of their business. So we will work with personal trainers, nutritionists Mm -hmm. who want to work with people to lose fat, gain muscle, improve improve their lifestyle and improve their health. And yeah, so that's what I do full time. I write the course notes, I deliver presentations, I deliver talks, and uh, I mentor the students. Along the, along the way, I was then asked to help deliver the BTN, sorry, the uh, Ben Coomber Radio podcast. And that's where some people might know my voice.
0: Yeah, excellent. And, and like I said before, for those who haven't checked out the, the Ben Coomber Radio podcast series, then do, do, please do so. Um, in relation to that, that podcast, Series, um, it's clearly really, really successful. It's I think you're at just over four hundred episodes now. When I had a look, um, that was through iTunes and the kind of rankings. Well, sorry, the, the review scores. You know, you're over ninety percent plus in terms of those reviews being at five stars. And, and you've had some really great kind of guests on the show and some really fantastic feedback I noticed when I was just going through the reviews as well. Um, comments like, you guys are genuinely inspiring, it's packed with great info, super informative, um, every podcast teaches me something new. And I, I really like this one, no nonsense knowledge bombs. And people even commenting, you know, that you guys are almost like their are kind of personal coaches from afar. Um, with with people Mm. even commenting that you're helping them and that you're an essential part of their fat loss journey. So you guys are clearly using and and talking about the stuff which you cover on your educational programs. I mean, in terms of the nutrition element that that obviously you guys specialize in with your your education, have you seen a change in that over time, um, maybe the past few years in terms of what fitness professionals are looking for or maybe lacking in terms of nutritional education?
1: Oh, God, massively. Um, so when I first first became sort of a part of the industry, um, it was around about the time that intermittent fasting was just becoming popular again.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, I'm aware that intermittent fasting sort of, it's done a pendulum thing, like it comes into being popular every four or five years, but it was one of those times uh, when I started paying attention to nutrition. But also it was when, because intermittent fasting at the time kind of fell into another trend, which was, around people starting to count their macros. Yeah. So historically, the fitness, the fitness industry has all been about clean eating, um, eating only X, Y, Z foods, removing the likes of grains, sugar, uh, fats, depending on who you ask. And then this idea of flexible dieting came about, um, first popularized as far as I'm aware by Lyle McDonald, and then it was spoken about by the likes of Ian McCarthy back in the day. And everyone started tracking their macros and using my fitness pal and all of that. And so what people started to ask about around that time was, well, how can I learn how to set up someone with the perfect macronutrient ratio? How can I make sure that someone's got the exact right numbers. And if I can give this client those right numbers, then the magic results will happen. And this started to manifest because a lot of the people who were interested in it at the time were just the really into fitness people. Mm-hmm. So we're talking like bodybuilders, physique prep athletes, these kinds of people. And, and that's the kind of neurotic person who's going to track their macros pre- like precisely to the gram. That they feel they're the kind people going to wear their food. And so this whole like zeitgeist happened in the industry where everyone started saying, right, you don't need to pay attention to your, to your food choices, you just need to get your macros right, blah, 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 blah. And as it always happens, this trickled down more towards the general public. Whatever bodybuilders do tends to eventually, five years later, be what the general public thinks they need to do to be healthy. That's why some people in the, in the general public still believe you need to eat six to eight meals per day mm-hmm. because of the old bodybuilding magazine. Um, but the problem is that that's not Workable. That's not how people work. People aren't going to do that. And so, a lot of the people who became fitness coaches, nutrition coaches, especially online coaches now, I've got nothing at all against online coaches. I do have online clients myself, but a lot of the people that became online coaches around about that time became online coaches because they seem to be under the impression that the way that you online coach is that you get a client, you do a couple of calculations, you give them them numbers. They go and eat those numbers, yeah. and then you would just their numbers next week, and that's how online coaching works. And a lot of those people came into the industry and found that it just wasn't working, they found that their clients weren't sticking to their numbers, and that their clients weren't doing it. And a lot of the a lot of the responses that the clients get when they said, "Oh, I haven't to my numbers," was along the lines of, "Well, just try harder, yeah. <laughs> uh, just just do just just do, do the thing." And I think that's changing a lot now. Um, I would like to think that I was part of that movement. Um, I started writing about how that was never going to work a long time ago now, um, but gonna, I'm gonna—I'm not going to take any credit or anything. <laughs> like I'm basically a no—I'm basically a nobody. Uh, much more That's intelligent, that. much more popular people than me have been saying the same thing. Um, and now it seems that people are starting to cotton on to the fact that actually, if you're going to be coaching the general public, a lot mm. of the problem is not that they aren't. A big thing was people say, "Oh, I just need to educate my clients."
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and the problem is very rarely education. The problem is application. I've never met anyone who thinks that pizzas are health food or that they shouldn't eat more vegetables. I've never met that person. Everyone knows that they should. Everyone knows roughly what a healthy diet is. Yeah, they might not know the details. They might be a bit confused about whether carbs are good, that kind of stuff. But most people know the general the general if you eat lots of fruits and vegetables then you'll probably be a healthy and people aren't doing it anyway. And so the coaches that came in were expecting to be able to educate their clients and change their behaviors that way. Um, they realise realized that's not going to work. And also those people who are just going to be macro coaches, they realize that that's not going to work either. And people are starting to cotton on to the fact that actually simple advice and working with your client on their habits, yep. that kind of thing is actually incredibly impactful. And you, to be a great coach, people are realizing you don't need to know everything that there is about diet. You don't need to know everything that there is about nutrition. Although that is very important what you need to do first and foremost is be a people person. What you need to be able to do is create a relationship with your client. And that's why, although we run a nutrition coaching qualification, probably 60% of the course is more about people management. Um, Like, yes, yes. You need to know the biochemistry. Yes. You need to know the anatomy, the physiology. You need to know how food works on an in-depth level because your clients are going to ask you questions about things that they've heard of, or you're going to read articles. and If you don't know the the basics, if you don't know, for example, how carbohydrate actually interacts with your pancreas, then you ain't going to be able to understand whether or not what you've read is or not. Um, And so having that basic understanding allows you to have critical thinking. But I think the the big thing that's coming in the industry now is that understanding that actually working with real people in the real world requires individualized nutrition not in terms of what you're asking people to eat but in terms of how you're actually getting them to apply it within their own individual situation
0: yeah again i guess it is back to that coaching part is the key fundamental element isn't it like you say you know you can have all the education on the planet but it's actually the application of that and and you know and we've discussed this before i know but you know we see in the industry press a, a heck of a lot that fitness professionals lack core skills which we'll come on to in just a moment but those core skills are often referred to as communication but what i think we're we're really Mm -hmm. talking about here is is this notion of coaching um rather than Mm -hmm. it being just you know this kind of random statement of communication skills but lacking it's much bigger than that it's the whole kind of education support pro program and um, progress and process and also you know like you say this habit formation and well-formed outcomes all those things you know it all come under this umbrella of coaching so yeah i, I totally agree mm. with you on that
1: yeah i mean one, one, one way that you can think about it is uh, historically the the industry has assumed that you can work on a knowledge deficit um knowledge surplus basis with your clients so let's say you go to the doctor and you've got a really sore throat what you're going for there is that you've got a knowledge deficit you don't know what's wrong with you and you don't know how to fix it and you are assuming that the doctor has a knowledge surplus mm-hmm. they've got the knowledge they've got the ability to fix it, and therefore that is how that relationship works that's not why your clients come to you no. and what we know from behavior change research we know from psychological research that that kind of model works very well for acute problems so again if you've got a if you've got a sore throat and you go to the doctor and you say throat sore and the doctor says right your throat sore because of x what we need to do is i need to give you y you will then go away and you will take y until you felt better but for chronic issues which is what overweight and unhealth is like unhealthy lifestyle related conditions are um that approach doesn't work mm. because the there's a few different reasons but one of them the probably the simplest one to explain is that the consequences for not doing what the expert says are so far away and abstract that you don't care anymore. So if I was to say to somebody that, oh, if you continue your lifestyle, you're going to be at a greater risk of a heart attack in 20 years. Like, what does that person care? That's 20 years away. They're already thinking, "I it won't happen to me. And so they ignore your advice. Yeah. And so if you're only going into each conversation with someone to talk about nutrition or, or a healthy lifestyle or whatever it is, and you're expecting to be able to tell them what to do and the consequences of not doing it or the benefits of doing it and expecting that to work, yeah. it's not really going to happen
0: no i totally agree you know and, and again this is something which is i think often overlooked in in terms of educational programs is yes you know there is a syllabus of, of content to get through and that's the core skills and the fundamental underpinning knowledge that uh, a fitness professional a wellness professional requires but you know some of this stuff you can't teach necessarily and it has to be done through experiential learning on the job and and it, for me it's a really core kind of key skill that. That fitness professionals should really focus on acquiring and developing and, and mastering as a key underpinning part of their craft in order to make sure that they're putting themselves in the best position to help their clients be as successful as possible and make sure that accountability is also allocated in the right proportions in the right places I.e., what is the client responsible for and what is the the trainer actually responsible for and i think that that's often not fully understood um i don't know where or how we fix that but you know education and, and these kind of programs that you guys are running is is definitely really will really will have a massive part in, in kind of shaping how that that pans out so yeah really really really
1: well, absolutely. interesting i mean one you know, one one thing that we talk about on our academy is uh, self-determination theory. Mm-hmm. Um, are you aware of self-determination yeah, yeah, yeah. theory? Yeah, yeah. So for the listeners, self-determination theory basically posits that, contrary to what a lot of personal trainers um, sort of implicitly believe, uh, our job as coaches is not to motivate our clients. Our clients are already motivated. The problem is that there's stuff in the way. Mm-hmm. And so... Rather than trying to think, well, I need to give this person motivation, instead you need to think of what is in the way of this person's intrinsic motivation that's already there, and just changing that mindset completely changes the way that you approach the coaching problem, because the three things that um, SDT posits that a person needs are competence, autonomy, and relatedness. and Competence and autonomy are probably the two main ones. Relatedness you can get just by having a coach. So that one's kind of de facto looked after anyway. Um, but if a client is not responsible for anything, I really like that you put that in there. So if a client is not making any of the steps themselves, if the client doesn't have homework that you set in them, if the client isn't, uh, the simplest one is if you've got a client who's in the gym, Give them their program to look after, and it's their responsibility to bring that in every session. Yeah. Um, that's just putting something in their hands that they've got to do. They feel involved in the in the process. It's not them coming to you as some like all-knowing expert who's going to tell them exactly the crack. It's them working with you as a partner. And then autonomy is the other critical one. Nobody likes being told what to do. Um, yeah, we might want to defer to an expert sometimes, and sometimes it is important to be told what to do. But over the long run, a client needs to be able to know that they can manage these things themselves. And so if you're working in a nutrition capacity or even an exercise capacity, and you're making every decision, that in and of itself can be a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you might need to make all the decisions initially, but over the time, it needs to come from the client. And if you're not putting anything on their shoulders, if you're not asking them what they think, if you're not, say your client comes to you, And they went out for a meal out on Saturday and they had three courses, a bunch of alcohol. They completely blew their diet. Everyone knows they ate too many calories. They're aware of that. How do you handle that? A lot of coaches in an attempt to show empathy and an attempt to genuinely do what they do their job as well as possible will say something like something like, okay, don't worry about it. The rest of your week was really good. Uh, These things happen. Life gets in the way. Uh, Next time, what you should do is. All you've done there is you've just told the client that they're, in your opinion, they're unable to deal with the situation. You haven't even attempted to say something like, well, all of the positive stuff first, but then instead of what you should do the next time, you can just say, why do you think you went so far off the rail this time? And they'll tell you why they went off the rail. Did they make a conscious effort? Did they think, do you know what? Uh, I haven't been out for a meal out in months. This is the only one I'm going to go out for another few months. I don't care this time, in which case you know it's not a problem, but you wouldn't have known that if you hadn't asked. Yeah. Or they might say something like, well, I was with a certain friend and they encouraged me to eat more, in which case that's how that conversation starts moving. If you're not asking your client to come up with the problems and then come up with their own solutions, right. um, you're basically back to being a doctor and as we've already established, that, that's not going to work. No.
0: And I guess it's this, you know, it's this notion of... You as the as the coach, the trainer, whatever term we want to use, you, you're essentially the conduit to guided self-help or self-discovery. And and like I say, if you're if you're just con, kind of consciously making those kind of comments and and not encouraging the client to actually explore that issue or that behaviour and come up with their own possible solutions or identifying factors that that caused it or created it, then you know you're just going to be going around in that merry-go-round unnecessarily. So yeah, totally agree. Totally agree with that. Excellent stuff. Absolutely. Okay. So um, we kind of already started talking about the kind of coaching process and what have you. And before we kind of look at that a bit further, I'll just for our listeners, just going back to the the podcast series that, that you and Ben um, deliver and just you've probably covered some of it already, really, and what you've already said. But can you just give us a mm. bit of an overview about what that that radio series is actually about? Um, what kind of content do you guys cover and and who, who do you yeah, interview? Because sure. you've got some great guests on there which I I've listened to um over the over the period of um well I've been listening for a few months now. Um well, actually more than that. Yeah. Probably about a year and a half. So yeah, some, some great episodes on there. If you just give us a bit of an overview.
1: Yeah, awesome. So we, we do two well, three sort of different formats. Um and they are guest shows, solo shows and Q&A episodes. The Q&A episodes, according to the reviews, um, if any of our listeners are listening, we do appreciate those reviews, by the way. Thank you very much. Um, a lot of our reviews say that the q and shows are people's favorites. So all that is is literally someone will write into the show and they will write usually quite a long and detailed question, which is good. Detailed questions get detailed answers. And we will then just talk about it. And we'll talk about it specifically about the person, Um, So say, for example, it could be, uh, hello, Ben and Tom. Um, my name is X. I am a crossfitter. I train five times a week. I'm having this certain problem. I've tried this, but it didn't work. Uh, blah, blah, blah. And then we will just try and work on that question. And of course, that means we have to make certain assumptions because we can't ask follow-up questions or anything like that. But we'll yeah. we'll talk around the various different iterations of what that problem could be. And people get a lot of benefit from that because we try to speak in as general terms as possible so that it's applicable to a lot of people. And then we'll bring it back into being specifically about the person in question. And it's amazing because quite often we can do a 45 minute show about one question. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. like we never get, like we always have three questions lined up and we never get at them all. Uh, because, because nutrition and exercise and health are so complex, you can not just talk for that long about one problem because there are so many different angles that you can approach it from. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we try to do. It's, it's we both try to approach it from as many different angles as possible to ensure that, yeah, the the person that asked the question gets a benefit, but so does anybody else who's got the same problem. Um, Our solo shows are usually a little bit more candid um, where we'll just talk about anything that's on our mind at the moment. Uh, Me and Ben sort of communicate during the week about who's going to do the next show. It's usually Ben that does them. I don't do many of those, Um, but the most popular show that I've ever been involved in was one of the solo shows that I did at New Year where I talked about uh, the lessons that I've learned from last year. Um, I'm a big believer in personal development, yeah, and so it was um so that was episode I don't know three hundred and eighty something <laughs> um, we, we have a lot of shows um but yeah my my new year show um that was a good one um but then we've got the guest shows, which are my personal favorite. Um, and we'll interview people from all over the industry. So I recently, um, spoke to Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum from Barbell Medicine. That was a brilliant show. Barbell Medicine, if you're not following them, are an evidence-based, uh, coaching company, I suppose. Uh, obviously, as you can tell from his name, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum is a doctor, um, He's just doing his residency at UCLA, I think, or he may have just finished that. If you're listening, Jordan, I apologize for getting that wrong. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, But they are very, very clued up on pain science. And so it was a really interesting show about uh, back pain and where back pain comes from, the myths surrounding back pain and what a lot of fitness professionals who are trying to do the right thing do wrong, um, especially when it comes to back pain. Uh, So we interviewed him. Um, We've had the likes of C.T. Fletcher. um, Great episode. I love uh, that one. (laughs) Yep, that's always a great show. Uh, C.T. is an absolute legend, to be fair. Um, We did one interesting, well, two interesting shows with um, Dave Crossland, who is the UK's leading expert on steroid harm prevention. Um, So that was a fascinating show on steroids and performance-enhancing drugs and what the reality is on the ground, because although the industry likes to pretend that it's nice and squeaky clean. Um, we've all been to gyms and seen people before. Um, <laughs> so we know that that's a slightly different picture. And that was just a fascinating show because he's a very intelligent dude that speaks very candidly about the risks that are really associated that a lot of people will often deny. Yeah. Um, but we'll also speak to people who talk a lot more about mindset. So the I would say the people refer to it as mindset, but it's not, it's and philosophy. Um, and it's the way you can think about things and the way that we think about problems and the way that we do it wrong. We cover basically anything that will influence your ability to lead a healthy lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Like we'll cover that at some point. And I think the reason that we're quite, <laughs> sounds a headed, but I think the reason that we're quite popular is that, first of all, we're, we're really candid and open. Um, as I hope comes across in this conversation, Like I will always speak very honestly on the podcast. Um, and I, I think that gets across. I think this is an industry where there are a lot of people have personas that they portray. And I think a lot of people have egos that they seek to protect. Whereas I don't think, at least, I hope, um, myself and Ben fall into that category. I think that we're quite honest with our audience. And I think if we don't know something or I think if we've made a mistake, then we'll always hold our hand up. And I think people respect that. Um, but the other side of it is, I just guess the word that we could use is holistic in that we understand that there is a lot more to health and fitness than your activity and your food intake. And if you're not taking care of the other stuff, then that stuff becomes very difficult to take care of anyway. If you're not sleeping well, if you're too stressed, if you're if you're facing your problem building it up to, to, to bigger than it is, yeah. all of these kinds of things can affect your ability to adhere to whatever approach that you're trying to stick to. and as I hope came across from the first sort of bit of our conversation. Um, The perfect plan on paper is irrelevant if the person won't stick to it. And while while we can sit here from a position of privilege, being people who are interested in health and fitness anyway, um, often if personal trainer demographic or anything to go by, usually younger people, usually people that don't have, As many responsibilities although i'm fully aware that there are some very well established pts have been around for a long time have families etc etc um a lot of personal trainers are quite young um and so it's easy for us to do these things and so we can look at people who are struggling and we can say well you, you just got excuses you just need to try harder you just need to want it more and all of this sort of stuff but the The pragmatic and and honest truth is that if someone believes that they can't do something because there's something in their way that they perceive to be a genuine barrier, then regardless of whether you think that barrier is genuine or not, it's going to stop them succeeding. And so you need to work around it. And I think that attitude comes across on the podcast and hopefully people enjoy it
0: yeah definitely i mean i, I have some of the my favorite episodes i don't know um there was an interview with james clear the author of atomic habits which is a book i really like mm-hmm. um i thought that was a really great episode and the um ex-navy seal commander uh mark i can't remember his surname oh yeah but yeah i thought that was really insightful well,
1: gravelly voice
0: yeah you know and he, like i said <laughs> great guests on your show and just listening to you know it like you say it's not just about the nutrition and the exercise you know looking at mindfulness and things like that you guys cover the broader picture and spectrum of, of mm-hmm. kind of health well-being so yeah fantastic so I mean I could talk about your podcast series for a lot longer but it's just a couple of questions to round this part of, of this um, episode up really so in terms of what you've learned along that podcasting journey that if, you, if you've got any kind of things that you could share with listeners that you would attribute the success of that podcast series to I guess you've kind of alluded to a fair amount of that already but is there anything that really if you had to kind of nail it down to one thing top of your list is there anything that really stands out
1: i think the main problem that a lot of people have whenever they're doing podcasts blogs social media posts anything like that is that people focus too much on being interesting and i think i mean like you'll hear this from relationship coaches and people who talk about like meeting people in bars but the worst thing you can ever do is try to be interesting. People who try to be interesting are boring as hell. Yeah. The thing that you need to do is try to be interested. So like the our flagship show our flagship shows are interviews. And I don't go in like well, we don't go into interviews with a agenda. And I mean the the masterclass in podcasting in my in my opinion is the Joe Rogan experience. Yeah. And if you ever listen to Joe Rogan, he gets guests on and he's not there to try and stroke his own ego. He's just interested in what the person has to say. And so the, he doesn't sit there with a list of questions, although you can have like unstructured interviews, that's fine. I usually have a couple of things scribbled down. Um, But just be interested in what the person has to say and just let the conversation flow. And if you're interested in somebody else, they will say interesting things and that will make your podcast good. It's not, all about you if that makes sense it should be about the guest now if you're not doing guest shows so say you're doing something and it is it, it might just be you you're sat there in your office with a microphone and you're speaking to the microphone and that's your podcast that's fine that's a really reasonable way to do podcast. lots of people have great success with that but again you can still do that in a way where you're interested rather than interesting so your podcast episode might be a, a client asks you a question And you can go into that question like somebody who's genuinely interested in it and you can pretty much just think out loud and just riff off whatever that you've read in that question and approach it from lots of different angles, like I mentioned that we do on the Q&A shows, and just try to pick it apart in as many ways as you can. And by doing that, you haven't tried to be interested. You're just interested in the problem. And that is interesting to listen to. And I think if you do that, not only is it more successful it's just easier <laughs> it's yeah. hard to try and be interested all the time but if you're just interested in the problem if you're interested in the person then that it, it becomes engaging listening
0: yeah i mean yeah i guess you're alluding to keeping it as simple as possible really and and letting it kind of unfold and take its natural course you know pick a a simple question topic to maybe start with and then just let it evolve from there i think yes
1: yeah. yeah absolutely i mean I mean, people can be often worried about not being so good socially. I mean, I'm awful socially, (laughs) if I'm honest. Um, I've spoken about that on the podcast before. I'm a massive introvert. Um, But the thing is, even if that's you, so a lot. if you're thinking about running a podcast and you think, no, I'm an extrovert, I'm great with people, then you're not going to be worried about this, so don't worry about it. But if that's not you, and if you're thinking, I I wouldn't know what to say, I don't know if it would come across well, Just remember that, yeah, you might not be the most socially confident person, but within your social group, in your particular interest group, um, you can talk for hours about a certain topic. And all you need to do is you just need to take that level of interest that you have in whatever your thing is. I'm guessing if you listen to this podcast, it's going to be fitness and nutrition. And you just need to know that you can talk about that thing for ages. You can talk people's ear off. And that's because you've got a passion for it. And if you can talk about the thing about which you're passionate, then that again becomes engaging and listening. So try not to try not to think of it in in those terms and just think, yeah, if you're interested in something, you can make it interesting. Yeah,
0: hundred percent. I totally agree there. Cool. So uh, I mean, just to kind of finish off this bit about the podcast series as well and advice for listeners, really, who might be thinking about going down that route to, as another kind of strand to their offer or, or um, mm-hmm. you know support for their clients what kind of are there any barriers that you guys came across in terms of you know getting your your podcast series up and running that you could share some insight into kind of key lessons learned that maybe other people could avoid from from your um, experience so to speak
1: yeah absolutely so i mean i've not been a part of the podcast since the this is the initial episodes, Ben ran it for a long time before I was involved, but I've still learned some things along the way. Uh, the first one is get a decent microphone. Um, it doesn't have to be the world's best microphone. Your audio doesn't have to be outstanding, but bad, bad audio will put off new listeners. Um, if you can't get a decent microphone, there's nothing wrong with just using a pair of Apple iPhone um, hands-free kit things with a little mm-hmm. microphone on. That That'll work just fine to get you started. Um, but don't just sit in an echoey room and talk to your Mac because that will sound garbage <laughs> um, if you do have an echoey room put your duvet on the floor uh, stand your whatever you're talking to on top of a, um, a towel and wrap yourself up in another like, blanket-y thing try to soften the edges a lot because that will kill a lot of the echo and that was a, a little life hack that I learned a couple of weeks ago because my audio has always been terrible and that fixed it so, <laughs> so there's a a, a less well it's a slightly more technical one um, but in terms of other things um if you're a personal trainer or a coach and you're using your podcast to do whatever remember what it is that you're trying to get out of the podcast people who make money off podcasts do their podcast as like a significant part of their job they'll spend a long time researching for their podcast they'll spend a long time recording editing refining um, and they then make money off ads. If you're going to run a podcast, it's more than likely that the reason you're going to do a podcast is because you want to build a following, and you're hoping that that following is going to translate to clients. Always remember that, because it's very easy to get caught up in the vanity the vanity metric. It's very easy to think, "Oh, I've only got two hundred listeners. Two hundred listeners could, if translated into two hundred clients, would be you oversubscribed for years." Yeah. And so. If you're doing a podcast and you've only got 40 listeners, that's fine. Service those 40 listeners like they matter. Actually put effort into the podcast and make sure that every episode is as good as you can make it because that's going to increase the it's going to increase the chances, not only that those 40 people are going to share the podcast around, which is going to inflate your audience anyway, but, but it, it's going to make them trust you more. It's going to make them like you more and it's going to make it more likely that they'll translate to clients. A lot of the time, especially on social media, podcasts and all these things, personal trainers get really worried about the fact that they've only got X number of followers or listeners or whatever. But just always remember what you're doing it for. You're wanting to get clients. And if you could convert all of those 100 Facebook followers to clients, you wouldn't be able to manage them all. So don't worry so much about expanding and worry more about service in the listeners you've got and and more listeners will come. The last thing I suppose would just be to be consistent. Um this is why I don't have my own podcast. Um, a lot of people have told me to do one. <laughs> um, I enjoy interviewing people. I can talk for England. Um, but I'm garbage admin. And so I wouldn't do a podcast myself religiously. Ben Kimber radio has an episode every Monday and every Thursday. And it has done for the past few years. Yeah. And I think that sets us apart. And I think that makes a big difference. Your listeners will start to expect podcast on a certain date and if you don't deliver it on that date they'll start to lose interest so always make sure you're consistent that might mean that when you first launch your podcast you put 10 in the bag and then you just add to that 10 as you go you don't want to get to the point where you've got to record a podcast on thursday because you need one to release tomorrow um and so having a few in the bag to just give you a head start on releases will will also make a big difference
0: yeah definitely i mean you see it all the time People talking about their success on things like YouTube, Cons- consistency mm-hmm. is always the thing which they come back to, you know, if they make a promise to to post or upload every day or every other day, then the minute that they stop that, it's all hell breaks mm-hmm. loose and every- everyone's making kind of yeah. um, critical comments about the quantity and frequency of their posting. It's not what they, they promised, etc. So yeah, I think that's a really, really important bit of advice there. Great stuff. Yeah. Okay.
1: Oh, the, the only last, the only last thing would be, um, every, when you, when you put out your show, when you do it, um, like each time you do an episode, it's very useful to create a graphic to share on social media, to tell people to go on this, take your time with that graphic and make it good because that's your business card. That's the, the cover of the book by which people shouldn't judge you but they will anyway and so yeah take your time with that graphic it matters more than you think it will
0: yeah definitely so i, I guess on on that note it's about creating that that persona that presence that community following and and trying to translate mm-hmm. that into the kind of the purpose of of this podcast really the, the kind of key topic um and to move into that is looking at the, the core skills from your opinion that you know potential pts or fitness professionals or those already well established in the industry should really be focusing on in terms of developing to make sure that the impact that they have on their clients is maximized what, what do you see those core skills as as or tools even being
1: yeah um, i mean most of these have been implicitly mentioned already but they just sort of make them explicit uh, the first one would be communication, and I'll be more specific than most people. I want to say that. Um, so communication's got a few different points, but the first one that I would say is that is critically important is active listening. So active listening, you're sat facing the person that you're talking to. You've got eye contact that's appropriate. You're not like staring them down. Because um, <laughs> when people try to do eye contact, it can come across as really weird. Yeah, quite
2: Um <laughs> Eye contact
1: should not. Eye contact could not, should not be continual, You should look away every now and then. Um, but yeah, eye contact, nod, uh, use strategic silences. People don't like silences, so if you ask a question of a client and they give like a, a one sentence answer, just don't say anything, just keep looking at them, don't say anything. They'll feel awkward and they'll feel the signs and silence and keep talking. Um, and then when they're finished, just like nod, agree, repeat what they've said. Uh, a really good formula that I got from a very clever bloke called Mark Fisher, who runs a gym in New York, um, was that if someone comes to you and they're not comfortable, so they might say, oh, I've never been to a gym before and I'm really nervous. The first thing that a lot of coaches will say is, oh, don't worry about it, you'll be fine. What you've just done there is you've just dismissed that person's issue. Uh, to, To utilize active listening, It would be put, okay, I understand. So the first thing is you understand. Then you rephrase what they've said. So it's okay. I understand that the gym doesn't sound like somewhere you particularly want to be. Then you can reaffirm it. So you can say, if anything, because you've never been in, it would be really weird if you didn't feel that way. Then you've normalized it. And then you offer a solution. And you go, but I'll be there with you. If you like what I can do is I can send you a little video before we go in. So you can just see what it's going to be like when you get there, what you've just done there is you've completely shown the client that you actually care what they've said and that you've heard them rather than just dismissing it out of hand. And then you've offered a solution. That little simple formula, if you can use it every time your client presents a problem, obviously don't do it so formulaic that it's obvious. Um, it can make a massive difference to your relationship and your client will start trusting you. If your client trusts you, they'll actually start coming to you when you have problems rather than just not saying anything. Uh, the other side of it, I suppose, would be to have genuine empathy. So I already mentioned this, but if a client presents a problem and you don't think it's a problem, that's irrelevant. Understand that your client does think it's a problem and so you'll need to help them work through that regardless of your impression. It's not about you, it's about them. And while we want to chalk things up to excuses, as I mentioned, an excuse can genuinely prevent someone doing something if they think it's a problem. Um, The other side of that I've got here, uh, noted down, is you utilize something called motivational interviewing, which is kind of what I've hinted at already. So a client comes to you with a problem Don't give them the solution. Assume that they know what the answer is and just lead them to it with leading questions. Don't just sort of hit it with a hammer and say, okay, so what do you think you can do? Because they wouldn't have asked you if they thought they knew that anyway. But you can still ask them about it. Ask them how a problem makes them feel. Ask them why the action that they've taken is, why they think the action that they've taken won't lead them to the goal that they've specified. And just converse with them. Just talk to them. Um, if you can talk to someone for 10 minutes about a problem, they'll come up with the answer themselves mm-hmm. rather than them come to you with a problem and then you give them the answer straight away. Uh, the next one I've got noted down here is to actually create longer-term outcomes. So we all learn on our Level 3 PT courses to set SMART goals and no one does it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's actually a really important process because if you can set a goal for six months' time and then... If you can set another goal, which is 20% of that, and then you can set two process goals, which are, so an outcome goal would be, I would like to lose four dress sizes in six months. And then a process goal would be something that is going to lead you towards that outcome. So I'm going to eat five portions of fruit and vegetables per day. If you can agree these with a client and again, agree these with the client, offer them, right. Okay. Uh, I've noticed in your diet that you're not eating a number, of, not eating many vegetables today. How many portions do you think you can aim for in the next two weeks?
2: Sure.
1: Because if you, if they say if they say three, cool, let's go for three in the next two weeks. It's not ideal, it's not what you want, but it's what the client has agreed that they can do. Mm. And if they haven't agreed to it, then it's not a smart goal. People never, people always forget about the A. <laughs> mm, yeah. um, so if you can do that, what you've done there is you've created a roadmap. You've, you've, you've set the North Star, you've set the thing that you're aiming for, and you've actually given your client actionable steps that they can, yeah,
2: that they have things.
1: decided themselves. Yeah, they're, they're, they're stepping stones. And then you can start checking up on the smart goal and go, right, okay, we're now 20% of the way of the time has gone. Have we achieved 20% of the goal? And if you haven't, then you know what you need to do. And this is such a fundamental part of coaching. And it's such a big thing that people just don't do. People tend to think week on week, right? Okay, this is the habit that we work on this week. Have you done it? Yes, no. How did training go this week? Do you need to squat heavier next week? And that's good. And it will get progress, but it's not as good as it could be. And if your client can't see where they're aiming for in six months time, by the time they have started succeeding in two months' time, they'll think, right, I'm doing all right now. I don't need a coach anymore. And then they'll leave you and they'll drop back into their old habits and they'll never achieve the goal and you've lost a client. Mm-hmm. So by laying out the roadmap for a more extended period of time, not only do you increase your revenue because you're keeping your clients for longer, you actually help people. And yeah, you can't really argue with that. And I suppose the last one would just be critical thinking because the, 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 The problem that we have in the modern world is not that we don't have the information, it's that we have too much information and there's no barrier to entry to anyone that wants to write information or put information out. And so any coach needs to be able to discern whether what they've read is or is not good information, especially if you're going to use that information to change your practice. And it's difficult to fully explain in this kind of format and in the amount of time that we have. How to utilise critical thinking, but being able to spot what is and what is not good information, like that, it's one of the most important things that you can do as a practitioner in any any area. Yeah,
0: that whole evidence based practice approach, and it's often overlooked. Um, it's it's something which we we tried to install in our um, level four advanced PT qualification was, you know, how do we differentiate it from level three PT to level four PT, and it was really about making that shift from. Okay, this is what you learn on your level three PT course, but now let's put mm-hmm. that into practice and keep yourself fresh with that knowledge up to date. Look at recent studies. You know, look at the science behind it rather than buying Men's Health magazine. Maybe nothing against Men's Health at all, but you know that, that tends to be a default option for a lot of a lot of learners and and PTs, unfortunately. And it's whilst there may well be great information in those kind of resources, it's we want to we're we as a profession, and if you can. Work yourself through that evidence-based process, um, then yeah, you're far more likely to be a successful PT
1: and and fitness professional. Oh, absolutely! I mean, absolutely! I mean, if you went to the doctor and your doctor had completed his MD qualification in 1980 and he hadn't read anything since, you wouldn't trust him. And it's it's exactly the same with your client. There is no such thing as the last course you'll ever need. It doesn't exist. And so if you've done a course and you've gained a qualification and you think, right, that's it, I've learned now, then in a very short space of time, your knowledge will be obsolete and it won't be enough for what you need to do. The same as if you you don't pass, when you pass your driving test, you still can't drive. And it's the same with a level three PT qualification. It gives you enough to start. It gives you enough to be professional. It gives you enough to work with clients. But in five years time, you would hope that you'd be a better practitioner than you would be on the first day that you qualified. And that is going to come down to continued learning. If you're not doing continued learning, then you won't succeed. And that's where you need to be able to understand what is and what is not good information. And looking for references is a really good starting point, but I'm, and I've said this, I say this on our Academy is a, a coach. Um, Reading primary research data isn't necessarily the only way that you can get information because that's complicated, and you don't usually need all of the information that's in there. You just need to know what's going to affect your practice, and that's one of the reasons why. I mean, on on our academy, we give you lots of resources, um, and we also show you sort of where to find new information and stuff because, yeah, you need that.
2: Yeah,
0: hundred percent. I mean, I, I really like the fact that you you know you refer back to this whole process of whether we call it goal setting outcomes targets whatever we call it but it's fundamental to to practice in our sector and industry it's all about if you can get that bit right you're much more likely to install those new habits change or modify behavior that was less desirable previously promote adherence and and shift you know for me any any students of mine from way back when when i used to teach if they're listening then they'll know what i'm talking about here but driving that accountability making sure that there's this clear line in the sand between you know what you're responsible for as a industry professional and where your support fits in and where the client is responsible and what they're going to be expected and clearly outlining that to them as well. But yeah, I totally agree with what you've come up with there. Really, really useful insight in terms of, of what fitness professionals should um, be looking at developing in terms of developing their craft. It's really
1: interesting. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're not setting goals, it's the equivalent of being an architect and trying to build and just trying to knock something up without putting a blueprint down first. like, yeah, it might work. Um, but you haven't gone through the process where you'll spot all of the barriers before they come up. I mean, and also the other side of it is if you're not setting smart goals and if you're not, well, if you're not setting longer term goals and then if you're not working on process goals, which are like the habits, the stepping stones, um, then you're probably not individualizing your advice. Yeah. Like, if you've got every client, the classic one, and I'd, I'd noted this down, I was going to mention this earlier, but I forgot. Um, so, at the minute, a lot of people in the fitness industry have come to terms with the fact that, that exercise is a really crappy, really crappy tool for fat loss. Um, the evidence is really clear on this. Exercise just doesn't really work for fat loss. The only thing that works for fat loss is creating a calorie deficit. And beyond moderate exercise, Three exercise sessions per week. What tends to happen is that as someone's exercise level increases, their non exercise activity level, so uh, walking around, fidgeting, all that kind of stuff, all that goes down pretty much to compensate for the energy burn. So when you're looking to lose fat, exercise is there to improve health to, yes, keep you a little bit more active and burn a few extra calories, but also it's primarily there to retain muscle mass and keep you healthy. And then the nutrition side of things is where the, the calorie deficit comes in. A lot of PTs have, have come to terms with this now. And of so what they're recommending is that you increase, your client increases non-exercise activity. So people are recommending that their fat loss clients do 10,000 steps a day. If every client of yours has the goal to do 10,000 steps a day, either you're probably not listening to them or you've just got a very fortunate set of clients. Um, My girlfriend's a really good example that I always use for this and she hates it, but I'm going to use her anyway. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, So my girlfriend's on a fatless journey to herself at the minute. And her day is she will wake up in the morning, which is a good start. Then she'll usually leave the house at around, yeah, she'll usually leave the house around seven. She's got a one-hour commute. She'll then start work at about quarter past eight. She'll finish somewhere between five and six, depending on the day. Then she's got a one-hour commute back. Then she'll go to the gym a few days a week. Then she's got to come in, eat her evening meal, get get ready for tomorrow, and then go to bed. Where does she do 10,000 steps? And if you're not talking to your clients with genuine empathy, and if you're not actually listening to them, that is a client that you're going to tell, that you're going to give a process goal that is unachievable. That's a client that, can't fit it in. We can say, oh, not having time is just a case of not having the right priorities, but that's the yes. Some people don't have the time. 10,000 steps will take you over an hour and a half to do. And so if a person has a sedentary job where they don't get steps by default, they ain't going to get 10,000. And so that person might need to have a smaller goal, 5,000, 6,000, whatever, if, if you're setting a step goal at all. And so this is just one illustration of why your clients can't all have the same process goal. Everyone that wants to lose fat can't do the same thing. And it's not because they differ massively physiologically. It's because their lifestyles are different. And so if you're not accounting for that, you are setting clients up for failure.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean so on that note, in terms of if we if we look at this umbrella term of of coaching, and you've given some really good examples, you know, of of how coaching fits into the, the role of a fitness professional. Do, do you feel, generally, mm-hmm. you know, top level thoughts here? Do you feel we embrace it fully as an industry um, here in the UK as part of the health fitness sector at the moment, or or do you feel we've got some way to go? I just wonder what your thoughts were on that.
1: I think we're starting to. Um, I do think we're
2: starting to. The big thing that I think is that. When a person qualifies
1: as a personal trainer, they've been told how to write an exercise program. They've been told uh, what the general nutrition advice should be. And they've been told that they need to set and agree goals with clients. But I think it depends on the tutor that you get as to how that entire process is explained. And the focus, I think, should be a lot more on the communication side and on the Allowing the client to input on the goal setting thing more than they do. Um, but beyond that, I mean, it's kind of as you say, if you look at something like men's health, which you brought up, um, it's always about the tips and tricks. It's always about, oh, this thing will give you an extra two, three percent. This thing will help to, if you have tomatoes with your breakfast, they've got lycopene in, which will help prevent cancer, all of this kind of stuff. And, all of that is not useful for most people. I mean, God, if you if you really want to talk about this, <laughs> um, <laughs> so I did a I did a presentation about a year ago. So twice a year, BTN the uh, education company do a conference,
2: and my talk was on why the government um,
1: exercise and nutrition guidelines don't work, sure. and. Often in the industry, we'll say, oh, the the nutrition advice that the government gives is rubbish because it's not enough protein, and there's too many carbs, and blah, 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 and I completely disagree. If you've got someone who ate the exact diet that the government prescribes, so a man would be 2,500 calories, I think a woman's about 1,900 calories, uh, like 15% protein, 50% carbs, bunch of vegetables, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you get a really healthy person most of the time. Yeah, if they're a high exercises, they'll need more calories, et cetera. Uh, if they're wanting to build muscle, they'll need more protein. But if they eat that, they'll be really healthy. The problem is no one does. And
2: I think that illustrates just how
1: much, just how deeply ingrained the idea is that people don't eat right because they don't know what to eat. Mm-hmm. People don't exercise because they don't know they have to. and the reason that these kind of government initiatives don't work and the evidence suggests they don't, I mean change for life's been running for 10 years now and the trajectory of UK obesity hasn't changed a dot. Um, is that it assumes that everyone can utilize the same approach and that's just not true. The thing is people need advice, not necessarily on what to eat, although again, that is needed in a lot of cases. Um, they need advice on how to apply it in their own life. Yeah. Uh, how to actually make that work for them. Because we can set this theoretical ideal, but if Janet that works as a cleaner, doesn't have time because she's got three kids at home, um, then she ain't gonna do it. And so we need to say oh we need to say to Janet, okay, I, I appreciate this problem that you've got. This is how the government think you should eat, or this is how uh, theoretically your diet could be improved. How can we fit that in? And over the course of six months, you can work out a way that Janet can apply that in her lifestyle. You can work out a way that she can genuinely adhere to and enjoy that process because just telling people what to do just don't work. And I think if we're looking at it from, if we're looking at it like that, and then we see that the government guidelines are what they are, and this is not UK specific, every Government that's got health initiatives does the same thing. It tells you what to eat. It's prescriptive. Um, and if we're looking at that, and that's the way that it's always communicated, and that's implicitly the way that we're going to think it should be communicated to. And it's just not. And I think if we as an industry are going to be the force for good that I think we can be, if we as an industry are going to be, as I think we are, the front line in the quote-unquote war on obesity, um, then looking at people as individuals kind of needs to happen. And if that doesn't become the focus of what we do as an industry, and I don't think at the minute it is, um, I don't think we're going to have the success that we otherwise could have.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, what, what you're kind of coming back to there is the whole coaching process. Again, you know, you're identifying, that uh, yes, education and the knowledge. The theory side is, vitally important but it, it mm-hmm. does come back to you know the processes and the application of that and keeping it unique to each individual client that that's huge part of the the kind of process to being successful and on, on that note i guess a question for you is you guys have just created um of had formally recognized a qualification now. So congratulations on that um, through us. So Thank level you. four certificate in nutritional coaching. That is the title, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just sort of want to double check who you didn't give the wrong title. But yeah, I mean, how how have you kind of addressed these kind of issues then through that qualification? Because it correct me if I'm wrong, that qualification is always that content you've delivered as part of your education program through BTN Academy. But, but, you know, you've wanted to move to push that into something that is recognised and actually gets credit for, for the content and helping to shift the knowledge base in our sector around nutrition and coaching forwards. Mm-hmm. What, what have you done within that qualification to try and help address those kind of issues that you've just highlighted?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the, I guess to not sort of go back over the same stuff, the big thing that we've done is to just essentially include within the course, all of the stuff that I've been talking about. So all of the stuff that I've been talking about hasn't just been like my thoughts and my opinions. Mm-hmm. Like this is what we know from behavior change research. This is what we know from psychological research. This is what we know about. I mean, people say, Oh yeah, the, you need to be evidence-based, but this, there isn't science to show everything. And and this goes against the science, but actually most things don't. um, The problem is you're just looking at the wrong science. (laughs) Um, But if you're wanting to work with people to change their lifestyle, and you're not looking at psychological research, um, you're kind of missing a really important part of the picture. Because yeah, I mean, looking at things like self-determination theory. I mean, even old theories like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, which posits that people need to have certain things in place before they can start looking at other things. Um, So if, for example, you're not comfortable in your financial situation you're not usually motivated to improve your health um because for various psychological reasons you, you need to have that big, that, other, that big rock in place before you can look at something else um if, so if you're not looking at all of those sorts of things then it becomes very difficult for you to coach people because you don't i suppose empathize with them yeah. um we, we include a lot of the data on the reasons why people become overweight, the reasons why people don't lead as healthy a lifestyle as we could because again, if we look at a person who is obese and we see someone who is greedy and lazy, we've already set aside in our mind the way that we need to work with them and it's wrong. The amount of times that I see personal trainers in gyms working with obese people and you can tell that the attitude of the PT is basically one of punishment um, it beggars belief and so we will look at things like the genetic things that predispose people to obesity, the environmental factors, the social, uh, the, it, it's referred to as the biopsychosocial model. Yeah. So biology, psychology, and sociology all combine in order to explain a lot of human behavior and a lot of human experience in general. And that sounds a little bit sort of airy fairy, but <laughs> the fact is that that's how people work.
2: Yeah, completely.
1: And, So without looking at all of those factors, it's difficult to empathize with your clients and it's difficult to put yourself in their shoes because you're not. I mean, I've said this before a lot. Yeah, perhaps when I said before that a lot of personal trainers are young and they don't have responsibilities, that doesn't jive with every one of your listeners. But the fact is that if you're a personal trainer, if you're in this industry at all, then you're probably somebody that enjoys exercise. You're probably someone that when you go to the gym, you enjoy the challenge and afterwards you feel really good because you get a big hit of endorphins. There are biological and genetic reasons why that happens, and some obese people, well, some people who are predisposed to obesity, literally don't get endorphins after exercise. So can you imagine going to the gym as a person who's 350 pounds? Um, You're very unfit. You feel unhealthy. You feel uncomfortable. You get really sweaty really quickly. You feel self-conscious because no one's been – Uh, you think everyone's looking at you, you do exercise and it's really, really hard because you're really unfit. And then when you leave, you don't feel better. Can you imagine going to the gym very often? Um, you probably can't. And without, without having the knowledge that that sort of stuff is real and it's not just an excuse that people put forward. I think a lot of people can prejudge people and whether we do it implicitly or explicitly, I think it's there. And those, those thought processes can tar the way that we work with clients. And so we include a lot of that in our courses. And I think, um, that alongside the in-depth theory, yes, we do make you learn biochemistry, <laughs> um, because you do need to know this stuff. You need to know how insulin works, how glucagon works, what the pancreas does. Um, um, You need to know all that stuff, how the Krebs cycle works, what the electron transport chain is, what potassium and sodium have to do with anything. Like all of that's necessary. But what's also necessary is how you get people to apply the advice that you give and what barriers will exist to them applying that advice and then how you can work with those barriers. And I like to think that we give people enough of the whole picture that they can work with basically anyone and then provided they use what we teach about critical thinking and continued learning, then they should be able to keep progressing as they go. So I think, I think what we try to do is we we see the issues that I've mentioned on this podcast already. And I guess we just try to solve them because I don't believe that personal trainers who give bad nutrition advice are bad people, I don't believe that personal trainers who do necessarily prejudge their obese clients are bad people. I don't believe that you will be in this industry if you were someone that doesn't care about people. I just think that with more information about what your clients are going through and the evidence-based methods of communicating and helping behavior change, uh, I think you just have more success with your clients, and I think that's what most PTs want. And whether you want it for their benefit or for your financial benefit, kind of irrelevant because they get the benefit anyway. So, uh, I, I, yeah, I think that's what we try to cover. And if our testimonials and everything are anything to go by, I like to think that we've achieved it.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, from my perspective, you know, and we've spoken about this before. It, it's a kind of it's a it's a fine balance often between art form and science and i guess what you're mm-hmm. saying is you know you're addressing that you're saying here's the science you know here's the evidence and this is how you can use that and, apl- and apply it mm-hmm. and then you know you've got the art form side in terms of what people tend to refer to as communication and all of the skills that and tools that fit within that there's loads of different yeah. ways that you can do it you can teach the same stuff to a group of people but they'll each go away and use it in a different way and i guess from what i've seen of the qualification you know when we were developing it with you guys it's it's covering those those kind of issues and giving people the tools and confidence to go away with this up-to-date evidence-based knowledge and then start using it in a way that works best for them and their clients and in order to make them more successful um, and hopefully help promote longevity of their, their career so yeah, it, it, the content is is really really interesting, and the fact that it is evidence based, you know, it it just echoes that we're keeping everything fresh but current, you know, and it, it's not just based on possibly like you are referring to before, just government regulations and guidance, etc. Um, mm. You guys are moving way beyond that, so yeah, really really interesting, and uh, you know, I'd recommend anybody to check check the qualification out. Um, it's on your website, I believe already. Um,
1: been promoted on yep, there for yep, to awesome. check out. Yeah, so the website URL is just btn.academy nice and simple um, you can go on there, you can read about the qualifications, so you can look at the learning outcomes and objectives uh, you can get all of the different price plans and stuff, but we also have a contact us form, so you can get on there and you can book a chat with myself and we can talk over whether or not the, the academy is right for you, whether this qualification is something that, that you need or that you're ready for or that is going to benefit your business and I'm always of the opinion that, I mean, I know everyone says this, uh, why ain't a salesman? And so if you speak to me and the course isn't going to be right for you, I'm not going to try to sell you it because at the end of the day, <laughs> I mean, pragmatically, at the end of the day, if I try to sell you the course and it's not right for you and it's not going to benefit your business, you'll realize that within a couple of weeks, ask for a refund that admin, I just don't want to do. So if you <laughs> so if you're coming to me to talk about whether or not the course is right for you, uh, we can have an honest discussion and if it's not, then it's not. But if it is, then hopefully I'll be able to point you in the right direction.
0: Yeah, sure. And, and just on that note, I guess, because um, I know we're, we're kind of running tight on time here, but in terms of the actual delivery of the programme and structure of it,
1: mm-hmm.
0: what, how, how are you guys kind of delivering it and structuring it for, for anybody who might be interested in, in enrolling?
1: Yeah, sure. So it's a hundred percent online, other than the two conferences which I mentioned which are optional anyway. Uh those usually run in London and I think the next one's gonna be in Manchester. Um but they usually near big sort of places that are easy to get to. Um so it's a hundred percent online apart from those. Uh we also send you books, so you'll get four textbooks, one of which uh well, basically each one applies to about a quarter of the course. Mm-hmm. And the way that it works is that you read the mo- you read the chapter for the relevant mod for the next upcoming module, and then the following Tuesday we run a live webinar at 11am. If you're unable to make the webinar, which is usually about 60% of the course, then it's recorded and you can just watch it later. After that webinar, you'll be given a little piece of homework that you've got to go away and do. Then you start reading the next chapter, and then you watch the next webinar, and then you do the next bit of homework, and so on. There are then five assessments throughout the year. So we don't have you do that like one big exam at the end. It's all broken up. Um, you're also fully supported because the course is taught live. It means you're in a cohort rather than just being one student on your own. So you've got your fellow students to support you and you've always got access to me as well. So I can help you with as much or as little as you want, whether that is answering a quick message in a Facebook group or doing a 20 minute Skype call or doing a live stream in the Facebook group where we can help you work through different, more complicated problems, whatever it is, we've, we're there to make you great coaches. And so we kind of do as much as we can in order to get that, to, to make that happen.
0: Fantastic. Sounds like lots of support for your learners, which is, is really, really great to see. So yeah, I mean, if you're interested in, in the qualification and you think it's going to be a, a valuable asset in terms of your own professional development, um, I'd say definitely go and check it out. Go over to the BTN Academy website and have a look um, and get in touch with with Tom. He'd be happy to chat you through that. Um, so I guess I've kept you for long enough, Tom. It's gone over an hour. I don't <coughs> mean to waffle on that long. Not you, it's me. Um, but I'm just really interested about what you guys do outside of your education company as well and all the other kind of support methods that you could potentially have for learners in terms of like the podcast and your own experience etc so it's it, from my perspective it's been really valuable having this discussion with you getting your insight into various aspects of the industry and sector um and just want to thank you for your time really i know it's precious you're a busy guy so yeah <laughs> definitely thanks thanks for spending this time on this podcast and um yeah hopefully we'll catch up again soon
1: yeah i'm sure we will again thanks for having me on and to any of the listeners thanks for for listening to me drawn on for about an hour. Um, if you want to keep listening to it, then do check out Ben Coomber Radio. But other than that, yeah, thanks for listening.
0: Excellent. Okay, thanks for your time, Tom, and uh, have a great day, and I'll speak to you soon.
2: Cheers, bud. You too.
0: Bye.